is the Cloud Now Podcast, your launchpad for Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud and Art Podcast. My name is Michael. And my name is Andreas. We are brothers and freelancers focusing on Amazon Web Services. We do uh, technical coaching for our clients. We also do infrastructure bootstrapping and um, architectural workshops, for example. In this podcast, every other week, we discuss a topic related to AWS. And the clue is that one of us prepares the topic while the other one has no idea what we are going to talk about. So this week, it's up to Andreas to come up with a subject. Andreas, what are you going to present us today? Yeah, so today we talk about advanced AWS networking. And especially we talk about typical pitfalls that you should avoid when designing a network architecture. Um, so that's uh, what it is about. Are you ready to start, Michael? Yes, I'm ready and I'm very interested. So let's get started. Okay, so all the topics that I present now. So I have um, I have uh, five different topics um, that are related to, or five different pitfalls um, when designing an AWS networking architecture. And I, all of them I have observed from uh, clients that we work for, where we consult uh, to optimize their AWS infrastructure or to build that infrastructure up from scratch. Um, so this is coming from the real world and um, yeah, just some, some pitfalls to avoid. So let's start with the first one. Uh, and by the way, before we start, um, so there's a blog post uh, related to this podcast episode. You will find a link to that in the show notes. And the blog post includes a lot of architecture diagrams. So that might make sense to have a look at them um, when following this podcast episode as well. Okay, so but now let's get started. So the first thing I want to talk about is um, two different approaches to connect VPCs with each other. So a VPC is a private network defined on AWS. And the question is, how do you connect it with other VPCs, either in the same account or uh, in other AWS accounts that belong to your organization or maybe even belong to a third party? And Michael, do you know the two options that are available to do so? Um, I think so. So we, we have VPC peering, which is around for quite some time, and with, with, which has some drawbacks, and I, I assume you're going to talk about them in a few minutes. And uh, we also have a, the new transit gateway, which is basically also tackling this issue. Exactly. So the two options, VPC peering and transit gateway, um, they have different pros and cons that I want to talk about. So first of all, you could think, and this was at least my assumption, that when I create a network architecture nowadays, transit gateway is the first choice. So that's what you think when you look at the news, when you look at the features that are coming out. So transit gateway seems to be the way to go. Um, um, the thing is, um, before transit gateway, we had VPC peering. VPC peering means you can set up a peering connection between two VPCs. And um, that's quite easy to do. So you create a peering request. The other part, so the, the owner of the other VPC has to accept your request. And then all you have to do is you have to create an entry in your root tables um, to allow traffic flowing between those two networks. So that's yeah very simple uh, to do. The benefit of VPC peering is uh, it, it operates somewhere on the virtualized network stack of AWS. So which means there is no single point of failure here. There's no machine uh, really where this is deployed to, which also means that there is no limitations on the maximum bandwidth that can go uh, over a VPC peering connection. Um, so that's, the, that's what VPC peering is about. So AWS added new features to VPC peering. Um, one is that... Uh, nowadays, we can peer between different AWS accounts, and there's even the possibility to have VPC peerings among or across um, regions. So you can peer VPCs that belong to different regions as well. Um, so that's fine. So there's only one downside, actually, and this is um, if you have multiple VPCs, so let's say you have four VPCs that you want to peer with each other, you have to establish a VPC peering connection 
between each and every VPC. So basically, um, you get a lot of VPC peerings um, to connect all those networks together. And think about you don't have maybe you don't have four VPCs, but you have to connect hundred VPCs. Then the number um, of connections grows uh, substantially. Okay, so this sounds like an exponential growth problem. Um, but besides that, um, also something that I like to add, which is maybe obvious. If you connect VPCs, the IP address ranges are not allowed to overlap. So if you create a network architecture, um, keep this in mind that it, it makes sense if you maybe today or even in the future want to connect VPCs to ensure that the IP address ranges of the VPCs do not overlap. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, so uh, from a configuration point of view, the, the growing number of VPC peerings that you need when connecting more and more VPCs is definitely a problem because how do you handle that? Yeah, how do you configure all of that? Um, there's one other thing uh, regarding VPN connections. So if you have to connect, for example, your um, your corporate network uh, with AWS, um, then you also have to set up a VPN connection for each and every VPN because you cannot share the VPN connection among multiple VPCs here when using VPC peering. And there's no edge routing as well. So yeah, you really have to set up uh, a VPN connection for each network. So that's, that's kind of um, the problem with VPC peering. And then AWS introduced Transit Gateway um, about uh, one, one year and a half ago. And this is now the second option that we have. So basically, VPC, VPC peering is still available. Uh, but we now have a, a second choice, which is Transit Gateway. So Transit Gateway is a gateway that um, can, you can use to connect up to 5,000 networks by default. So you can basically peer uh, five five thousand VPCs with each other by using a VPC transit gateway. Um, so that's that's cool. Uh, and um, the main difference to VPC peerings is you only have to attach each VPC once. So you attach the VPCs to the transit gateway, and then you can define routing tables inside the transit gateway um, that make sure that traffic. Um, yeah, is routed between those networks as you want uh, them to be connected. So you can connect all VPCs with each other, so allow traffic flowing around between all VPCs, or you can even have more fine granular network structures where you have some VPCs are able to talk to each other, but they are not able to talk to other VPCs, for example. So that is possible with the transit gateway. Another benefit here is um, that you can also attach a VPN to a transit gateway, and then you can use that connection for all VPCs that are connected to the transit gateway. So the number of peering connection uh, decreases a lot, and you only need uh, one VPN connection to your data center. Um, for example, that's that's another benefit when using the transit gateway. Okay, Andreas. So if you um, talk about um, VPN connections, does this also apply to direct connect? Yeah, that's true for Direct Connect as well. So you can attach your Direct Connect connection to the Transit Gateway as well um, and share it uh, among uh, your VPCs. Okay, so that's great. So I think you introduced quite a few benefits of using uh, the Transit Gateway. So I assume there are also some, um, uh, like some things that, that don't work quite so well. So what, what are the drawbacks? Yeah, so... Um, the, the big drawback actually is what I have observed in a project, um, and this is basically there is a baseline cost for connecting a VPC to the transit gateway. So you pay $36 per month for each VPC that you attach to the transit gateway. So, um, yeah, so this, um, this is maybe surprising <laughs> because all you basically do is uh, you create... Um, a virtual connection between your VPC and the transit gateway and you have to pay for that even if you're not using it or you're not sending any traffic through it. So that's that's maybe an interesting um, learning here. So if I understand you correctly and if I connect 5,000 VPCs with transit gateway I will pay $180,000 per month for the connection? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's okay. just for... for 
them having them connected you pay on top for the traffic um, so for the traffic that flows through the transit gateway you pay uh, two dollar cents per gigabyte as well so that is by the way true for the vpc peering as well so costs for the traffic are the same uh, between vpc peering and transit gateway but the baseline costs of $36 per VPC attachment are, yeah, are quite, <laughs> are quite interesting, I would say. Uh, and also uh, important to note here is um, you're not only paying for VPC, attaching VPCs to the transit gateway. So the same costs uh, apply for attaching the VPN connection. So for example, if you have four VPCs and one VPN connection and you want to attach all of them uh, to your VPC, um, you pay uh, five times $36, which is $180 per month, uh, just for the transit gateway set up to be in place. Um, so that that might, you may say that doesn't bother me. So we are an enterprise customer and that's fine for us. But if you are a smaller customer or costs are really important to you, um, that might be uh, interesting to know upfront before you basically design your network architecture. Okay, I see. So um, you mentioned uh, when you were talking about VPC peering that there is no bandwidth limitation. Is this also true for a transit gateway? Yeah, so that's where it, it's a little bit tricky. As always or as often, the problem with uh, the limitations on AWS is that, that they are not very well documented. And also AWS support does not really answer questions related to those or yeah does not really answer those questions so what what you can say from the documentation is um, they say that um, the connection between your vpc and the transit gateway is limited to 50 gigabits per uh, second um, but there is a, an asterisk here it's burst bandwidth so yeah we don't really know <laughs> the, the 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 baseline network throughput that we have here and it's also not that clear. Um, so it seems to be possible to increase um, the bandwidth by um, asking for a limit increase. But yeah, it's not really clear what the upper limit is here. So if you really have um, requirements for very high throughput, make sure you double check that um, before you build up your network architecture uh, based on the transit gateway. Okay, so I have one additional question regarding the bandwidth limitation, and I'm not sure if you can answer this because you already mentioned that it's not so very well documented. So does this limit? So this is not a transit gateway limit; it's a connection limit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the it's the connection between VPC and the transit gateway. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's not hundred percent clear. So, if you really have um, a project that has requirements for more uh, bandwidth. Uh, double check with uh, an AWS solution architect or support and really make sure that they 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 have written that <laughs> to you uh, that says they will increase your your limits there if you really need to. Yeah, so but I think the learning here is um with transit gateway um compared to VPC peering it can become quite costly. So I have come up with a simple uh, pricing example. So for example, if you connect four VPCs with each other and you have two VPCs that you want to connect to your on-premises network uh, via VPN, um, and you have 1,000 gigabyte of traffic between the VPCs and 500 gigabyte of traffic that goes over VPN to your on-premise network, you will pay around about $150 when using VPC peering, but you will pay uh, $280 per month uh, when using the transit gateway approach. So basically, um, you always double the price from a networking perspective um, when using transit gateway instead of VPC peering. So I think the learning here is as long as the number of VPCs that you have to connect uh, is not maybe, let's say about, if that is not higher than 10, it's maybe not a good choice to use the transit gateway from a cost perspective. Of course, if you have thousands of VPCs that you have to connect with each other, it's not only the costs for the networking infrastructure, so transit gateway, it's also the cost for the complexity in the configuration and the VPN tunnels that you have to configure on the other side uh, that that need to be considered. But I think yeah, it's important that maybe transit gateway is probably only for big enterprise customers with complex networking infrastructure. Uh, it's not for everyone. 
Okay, and this also kind of assumes that you are following uh, a network architecture where you like to have private networks. So, I mean, there's like another kind of approach having everything public and making sure that you have strong authentication on the endpoints. Um, so, I mean, that's also an option if you want to get rid of all this network complexity. Sure. So in general, you could say we want to uh, re-architect our whole systems and basically we want to do the same approach that AWS is doing and each service in our organization has a public-facing API um, that uh, other parts can talk to. But I think in many organizations, this is uh, far, far beyond um, what they're currently doing. It's probably not too easy to implement uh, out of the box. But of course, there are complete other options <laughs> to solve that problems. But if you want to connect private networks with each other, then this is uh, what you have to think about. Okay, Andreas. So I think that was the first um, kind of uh, pitfall that you mentioned. Um, so what's the next pitfall? Okay, so yeah, let's let's talk to the about the next one. So um, we have written about that problem before, and also a lot of people have discussed that before us, but I want to bring it up here when talking about pitfalls in networking architectures, and this is um, the NUT gateway. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit. So first of all, the AWS recommended networking architecture is that you split up UVPCs in so-called public and so-called private subnets. And basically, a public subnet um, is attached to an internet gateway, which means packages from the internet can flow in and you can establish uh, internet or connectivity uh, out to the internet from that uh, subnets as well. The private subnet, on the other hand, does not have a route to the internet gateway, um, which means it cannot be reached from the internet, but it can also by default not reach any resources on the internet. And now the thing is, in, in that, so that's the default network architecture that you have. So that's what's recommended um, when uh, building stuff on AWS. And also security guidelines, security checklists uh, will basically check if you follow these rules, if you place your databases, your application servers into private subnets and only load balancers and stuff uh, in the public subnets. Um, but there's a prob problem with that because oftentimes you have, for example, EC2 instances in the private subnets that also need to establish uh, network connections over the internet to third-party APIs or even to AWS services, for example. And the problem now is you need some kind of nutting uh, to make sure that those resources in the private subnet are able to connect to the internet. At the very beginning of AWS, <laughs> what we had to do is, some, some people might remember that, uh, you had to spin up uh, EC2 instances uh, that were acting as so-called NAT instances. So they were basically, with an IP tables configuration, nutting the traffic from the private subnet uh, out to the internet. Luckily, nowadays, uh, we have a NAT gateway for that. So that's a managed service by AWS that we can use um, to 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 make yeah, to basically enable those outgoing network connections from the private subnet. Yeah, so I can remember the NAT instance times, and what what I also uh, want to add here is the the NAT instance is based on an AMI that is provided by AWS, and this is based on Amazon Linux One, and it hasn't seen an update since quite a while, and also Amazon announced that Amazon Linux One will be end of life i think it's june this year or maybe july something like this like mid of the year so my impression is that there's basically no NAT instance anymore so the the recommended way is using NAT gateways which is interesting because for small environments and also like dev and test environments they are much more expensive compared to NAT instances i mean i know that there are lots of problems with NAT instances that you have to operate them properly and make sure that network throughput um is uh, big enough for your workloads, but still um, we see customers where this um, increases the cost so heavily so that they change their architectures because they spin up environments for every uh, developer, for example. And if you uh, have like 10 developers, then this could easily um, consume more than $1,000 uh, per month for basically nothing. So that's also like an interesting development, I think. 
Yeah. Yeah, so that's exactly the, the thing. So the NAT gateway uh, is the recommended option um, for having uh, outbound internet connectivity for your private subnets, which is fine. Um, in many scenarios, you basically will need that and many customers deploy it to their VPCs. But what you have to know is um, you are adding costs to your network infrastructure. And one aspect is what Michael already mentioned is, again, there's a baseline costs for a NAT gateway. And this is um, 32 US dollars per month per NAT gateway. And what you have to know is um, you need to have a NAT gateway in each and every availability zone that you operate in, um, because otherwise um, it could it's possible that the NAT gateway that you have configured for a subnet um, is not available in, in case of an outage of an availability zone. So, for example, if you follow... Um, the recommendation and use uh, three availability zones, uh, you will pay $96 per month for the NAT gateways just to be there. So that's just the baseline costs. So that's one aspect of the costs that you add with uh, NAT gateways. And that's what Michael mentioned. This is um, especially important if you spin up a lot of environments um, with isolated networking. So for example, for each developer or, or stuff like that. So then this gets... Um, uh, a significant amount of money that you spend just on the NAT gateways um, uh, being there. And the other thing is um, you not only add costs, uh, the baseline costs, but also the traffic costs increase. Um, so, so you pay around about $9.00 per gigabyte that is going out from an AWS region to the internet. And with NAT gateway, you're, you're increasing that cost. So you're adding 50% to that costs, uh, cost increase of 50% for outbound uh, traffic. So you're not only paying more baseline costs for the infrastructure, but you also pay more for the traffic. And this can also make, uh, cause troubles. So if you have a workload uh, in the private subnet that needs to send huge amount of data out to the internet, from the private subnet, which means it goes over the NAT gateway, then it's also not very economical to to use the NAT gateway here. So that can also be a reason for um, yeah thinking about uh, not to use uh, the NAT gateway. So what's the what's the alternative? So in a dev environment, you might say um, you spin up EC2 instances um, for that. So that might be an option. Um, but in other scenarios, um, uh, it's maybe not really recommended to manage your own uh, NAT gateways on top of EC2. So basically, the only option that you have is um, you can move your workloads from the private subnet to the public subnet, and maybe especially um, the parts of your workloads that have the requirement for yeah, high traffic uh, over or outbound to the internet. Yeah, So in that case, it might make sense to move that workload from the private subnet to the public subnet because then the instances can talk to resources on the internet without the need of any NAT gateway. And that, that decreases traffic costs uh, substantially. So you can think about that. So we see many clients um, that struggle with that problem um, and um, they then decide to move either the whole workload or parts of their workload to the public subnet. Uh, of course, from a security perspective, um, you have to be aware that there is, a, that there is more risk uh, with that configuration because in theory now, packages from the internet can reach your EC2 instances in the public subnets. Um, and of course, you can mitigate that risk for example, or definitely you should have security groups in place um, that restrict incoming traffic very strictly. And you can also think about having network access controllers in place to have a, a second layer here um, that prevents um, data coming in from the internet to those instances. Uh, I know that there's, it's, in theory, there's it's still more risk than placing your EC2 instances in the private subnet. But that's, I think, the trade-off that you have to make here. So is it, uh, from an economical uh, standpoint, uh, is it worth to place the instances or move the instances in the public subnet? Um, or do you want to pay 
for the NAT gateways here to have that layer of security, really. And yeah, we see both. So we see customers that um, decide we put everything in a public subnet and want to reduce costs. We see others that pay the extra uh, costs for a NAT gateway to yeah, to follow the, the security best practices and uh, and mitigate the risk here. So I also think that one aspect that that really uh, motivates people to move their workloads into private subnets, no matter what the uh, like the network costs are, um, is uh, security tools that very some sometimes very simply follow rules and without questioning the rules. So they just so if there's something running in a public subnet, they flag it as insecure, whatever that means, and then people are like alarmed and move everything in private subnets without considering the consequences regarding costs. And then over time, just their network build will increase and they don't really know why. So yeah, I, I recommend that always take this advice from security tools with like, um, I think it in English you say with a, a crown of salt or something like this. So be 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 suspicious and, and question the, the alerts that they generate because very often they just create lots of alerts to make sure that you feel like insecure so this tool is valuable it it has lots of recommendations um but yeah you should sometimes question those recommendations and very often they are they don't really apply to workloads on aws and there are better ways to to implement them yeah but i think what these tools are doing uh is they just implement the the recommendations from aws or also from um, yeah, security checklists or security best practices that a lot of other that, that the industry is following. So of course, um, we're not using private subnets. Uh, you're not following those best practices anymore, and you have to be able to argue why you're not uh, why you're not doing so in this uh, scenario. And I think there are good arguments for that. Okay, so okay, so we have talked about transit gateway with, versus VPC peering. We have talked about the problems with NAT gateways, one possible solution is to move parts of your workload in the, in the public subnet. And the next thing I want to talk is VPC endpoints. And uh, Michael, maybe can you give a short introduction to what is a VPC endpoint? Um, yes, so I think there are, so first there are two different endpoint types. Um, so the, the, the oldest ones are um, basically a way to make sure that you can connect from a private subnet to S3 and DynamoDB without going through the internet. So I think there's this kind of DNS magic combined with some other magic. So you don't have to change anything uh, in your application code. It will just resolve the DynamoDB DNS name to some private IP address. And then you can talk to DynamoDB without nothing. And then for some reasons, AWS stopped deploying those or stopped developing new versions of those kinds of uh, gateways for uh, endpoints, sorry, for other services, and they invented something new. And they, I think, work similar, but are more expensive. Um, so yeah, maybe you can give us some, some more insights, Andreas. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so in general, so... <laughs> Uh, VPC endpoints, so that's what I wanted to ask you basically. VPC endpoints um, allow you to talk to AWS services that uh, only by default offer a public API and those VPC endpoints allow you to talk to those AWS services without the need uh, of going to the internet. So you have basically a private endpoint to talk to AWS services. Because that's maybe also not clear for everyone, most of the AWS services um, are not part of a VPC. So in a VPC, you deploy EC2, RDS, Elasticash, stuff like that. But there are a lot of AWS services. I would say the, the, the majority of AWS services just has a public API that you talk to. So examples are S3, DynamoDB, CloudWatch, SQS, Kinesis, and many, many other services. And the VPC endpoint now allows you to talk to those services without the need of going over an internet gateway, so basically without internet connectivity. Um, so that's, that's, that's cool. So... Um, Michael, you already mentioned that there are gateway endpoints. So these are only available for S3 and DynamoDB. 
the big benefit here is they are free. <laughs> so you don't have to pay anything for them. And that is why uh, I highly recommend to add endpoints for a 3 and DynamoDB to your uh, VPCs and to configure the routing for um, the private and public subnets uh, accordingly um, because that decreases the costs uh, for the outbound network connectivity over the NAT gateway significantly. So that should be a default um, in, in your uh, network configurations. And now there is also interface endpoints. That's what AWS calls them. And uh, the interface endpoints is the new way uh, AWS has built VPC endpoints for many and most of the AWS services. For example, you can find interface endpoints for CloudWatch, SQS, Kinesis, um, and many other services. And the thing here is an interface endpoint costs um, uh, $7 per month um, per availability zone. So again, uh, you have to create an endpoint, uh, or you should create an endpoint in each availability zone that you have deployed your workload to. So typically that's two or three. And so that is um, multiplying the costs accordingly. Um, and of course, uh, maybe that's something we have to mention here. Uh, you also can use a NAT gateway to talk to uh, the AWS services with a public interface, public API. Um, but then, yeah, the same the same limitations and problems apply that we have been discussing um, um, before. Okay, so um, so what's what's the thing with VPC endpoints? So I think uh, first of all, uh, it's important you should. Uh, at gateway endpoints for a three in DynamoDB by default, and then the question uh, with uh, introducing interface gateways is: How many AWS services do you need um, to access from the private subnets? So, because the math here is basically you compare the baseline costs for an interface endpoint with the baseline costs of a NAT gateway. So, and the rule of thumb here is. <laughs> Um, if you have more than four different AWS services that you need to reach from your private subnets, uh, from the baseline cost perspective, it's cheaper to use a NAT gateway instead of interface endpoints here, yeah? because that's uh, the, the $7 per month for the interface endpoint and uh, the $30 per month for the NAT gateway. Um, so that's what, uh, what you need to compare here. Uh, unfortunately, it gets even a little bit more complicated because the traffic, the traffic over the NAT gateway, is more expensive, uh, about four times more than what you pay for the traffic that goes through an interface endpoint. <laughs> so that means if you have um, um, AWS services that you use uh, from the private subnet um, with a very with very high amounts uh, of traffic flowing through it might be then also cheaper to introduce uh, an, an interface endpoint instead of using a NAT gateway. So you really need to do the math here. Um, basically, many services maybe do not cause high traffic. So for example, if you just send a few messages to SQS, that's maybe not, not that interesting, um, but it could also be that the amount of traffic is so high that it's then yeah maybe cheaper to use an interface endpoint instead of a NAT gateway. So really do the math here when designing your network uh, architecture and decide do we need um, an interface endpoint or do we need a NAT gateway here? So I have one question, uh, Andreas, regarding the interface endpoints. So is there really a cost for gigabytes that, that flow through interface endpoints? Yes. This is uh, $1 cent per gigabyte. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't aware of that. So it's not for the for the gateway endpoints for a three and DynamoDB, but for the interface endpoints, there's a cost. Yeah. Okay. So this is another pitfall. So make sure um, you calculate um, what's best in your scenario to not overpay for the networking infrastructure. Okay, Michael, are you ready <laughs> for the next pitfall? Yeah. So I think there's. I mean, how many pitfalls will there be uh, following? <laughs> two so I more. think there's yeah, two, two more, more pitfalls. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's go on. Okay, so the next one um, is related to um, or to a CDN. So if you plan to add a content delivery network to your network architecture, 
<clears throat> then that's something you should be aware of. So what is a content delivery network? So a content delivery network is a global network of edges um, that is used to cache static content. So for example, our blog cloudonout.io uh, runs um, by using uh, a CDN and we are using the, the CDN from Amazon, which is CloudFront here. And yeah, basically the thing is if you are, uh, if your browser um, requests all the resources to, to show the, the blog on your, in your web browser, those requests will hit uh, CloudFront at an edge location nearby. So for me, it's basically probably Munich. Michael, for you, it's maybe Frankfurt, um, that where the next edge endpoint is. And the thing here is now that CloudFront is then answering the, the requests, if possible, by um, getting the content from the cache. So it does not need to really send the, the request to the origin server uh, where you operate uh, your web application or what have you. So that's why adding a content delivery network is, I think it's becoming a default to use that for modern web application because it first reduces the load on your backend servers and it also um, reduces latencies for, for the clients a lot so that it makes sense to have that. Um, so the thing here is something you need to be aware of is um, when designing uh, a network architecture basically or when picking the, the cloud, uh, the, the content delivery network is uh, also cost related. So besides CloudFront, there are popular other CDN providers. So there's Akamai, there's Cloudflare, Fastly, uh, to name a few. So many others uh, that are out there. They have, by default, they have uh, all that, the functionality that I've described. Some of them come with a lot, of, lot more than that. So um, they have uh, other features as well. So you might think of, uh, we want to pick a content delivery network that fits our needs. And the thing here is, there's, there's one thing that you have to keep in mind, and this is um, on AWS, you pay for the traffic basically that leaves your VPC uh, and that basically goes from your VPC to the internet. You have to pay for that traffic. So this is round about $9 per gigabyte. And um, the important thing here that you need to know is um, you have to pay for that um, when you use a third-party content delivery network. So basically what you pay then is you pay for the traffic from, for example, your application load balancer to the content delivery network. And typically, you also have to pay your content delivery network for the outbound traffic that then goes to your clients. Um, the important difference here is when using CloudFront, AWS does not charge for the outgoing traffic from the ALB to CloudFront, the content delivery network. So that is free of charge, the traffic here. And that's basically something you have to keep in mind when choosing a third-party provider here is that when you calculate the costs, uh, you have additional costs here that you need to think about. Okay, so to make this a little bit more like uh, practical, so basically, um, depending on the cost, okay, but uh, usually you double the, the traffic cost if you use a third-party CDN compared to CloudFront. Yeah, the, the, the question here is then uh, how much traffic is really going between the content delivery network and uh, your infrastructure on AWS. I see, yeah. So if you can cache um, most, of the requests, most of the requests for a very long time, it's, it might not be um, impacting costs a lot, but it could. So make sure you, you calculate that uh, upfront or estimate that upfront at least. Um, so that's, that's important to know, yes. Okay. Okay, I see, Andreas. So it's time for the for the last pitfall. Yes, the last pitfall. So the last pitfall is again um, more related or more important for enterprise workloads, I would say, because it is uh, also only a problem in hybrid cloud scenarios. <clears throat> so that is um, what the last um, pitfall is about. So it is about root fifty three resolvers. So what are root fifty three resolvers? So first of all, Route 53 is the DNS service of AWS. 
you can use it to manage domains, public domains. You can manage it to um, to operate uh, hosted zones. Uh, they can be public or private. And basically, it's all about DNS with Route 53. And um, when when connecting your on-premise network with AWS, you will sooner or later <laughs> stumble upon the problem that you need to manage DNS records for the resources on AWS. So basically, you want to have uh, readable and uh, names that you can remember for the EC2 instances and load balancers uh, on AWS. And the thing is, the easiest way to do so, because it's integrated into AWS and also into infrastructure as cloud tools like CloudFormation and Terraform, is what you typically end up with is using Route 53 and a private hosted zone to manage the DNS names for uh, your internal network, the VPC part. Um, yeah, you do use Route 53 for that. And now the problem is, or you have basically two problems. Uh, the machines running in the VPC, they probably also need to resolve host names of endpoints in your on-premise network. So that is what they typically need to do is they need to contact an internal domain, uh, the name server, an internal name server to resolve that host names. And you also have the, the problem in the other direction that resources in your on-premise network need to resolve the host names from AWS. So for example, managed in a private hosted zone. So let's make an example. So you might have a domain name, let's say myintra.net. This is your internal network um, names, namespace, and you might decide to have aws.myintra.net for the namespace of the resources on AWS. And basically, you now need to make sure that you can resolve those names from both sides. And AWS introduced um, Route 53 resolvers to, to, to basically make sure you can do that. And there are two types of resolvers. You can have an inbound resolver, um, the inbound resolver uh, is uh, is acting as the endpoint for um, or that the internal name server in your on-premise network forwards requests to. So you configure your internal name server to forward all aws.myinternal.net um, requests to the root 53 inbound resolver. And then this part of the of the uh, DNS side works. And there's also outbound resolvers that work in the other direction. So you basically configure the name server on the AWS side to forward all requests for uh, myintra.net to your name server on premises uh, to resolve those uh, uh, names. Yeah? So that is what you use root 53 resolvers for. Uh, does that make sense, Michael? Um, I think so. I mean, it sounds complicated, but um, I, I think I understand how it works. But um, so you mentioned that there is a pitfall. So what actually is the, the problem besides the complexity? <laughs> yeah, good question. So um, again, the problem is the pricing. <laughs> so um, we pay um, 180 US dollar per month for an inbound and also for an outbound resolver. So that's quite <laughs> that's quite a lot, <laughs> just for having uh, DNS in place. So this is again the baseline costs. You also pay for uh, requests, um, but I think what we, I want to talk here is um, the the baseline costs because that's that's quite impressive. <laughs> so um, so so keep that in mind when adding those uh, to your architecture. Um, so two possibilities to make sure you're not uh, creating crazy costs by using Route 53 endpoints. So the first advice here is um, you can share the outbound endpoints uh, among multiple VPCs and even among multiple uh, AWS accounts. So you can use the resource uh, share manager for that. You basically can share uh, the outbound rules and attach them to multiple VPCs, even in other AWS accounts. 
So by that, you can basically, you only have to pay once the $180 per month for the outbound uh, endpoint and can use that for uh, multiple VPCs and multiple AWS accounts. Okay, so I have to attach this to every VPC, so this is not something that I could attach to the Transit Gateway? Uh, yes, you have to attach it to the VPC, I think. Okay, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yes, it's a lot of work. And also, um, I think the downside of sharing the outbound um, endpoint, outbound resolver, is, of course, you're then introducing a single point of failure. And usually that is why we use multiple AWS accounts. We use them to isolate the workload and to make sure that no one, uh, by making a change to one AWS account, break something in other AWS accounts. So that's basically what you're giving up here to reduce the costs. Uh, okay. Uh, unfortunately, um, or for the inbound, um, for the inbound side, uh, there is, depending on how you set up your private uh, hosted zones, you also can uh, use only one um, inbound resolver. So basically, for example, you could you could have one AWS account where you manage um, the private hosted zone. And all other AWS accounts uh, are allowed to make modifications to the, the records in the hosted zone, for example. And then you only need one inbound resolver to, to, to make that happen. So that's possible. It's also a lot of work to configure that, of course, and to make sure that works for all VPCs and, and so on. But it's possible in theory. Um, or I think there is also uh, a complete other approach that you can use which doesn't need an inbound resolver at all because what you can do in theory is you can just use a public hosted zone to also manage the records pointing to internal IP addresses. Yeah, So I know. <laughs> so first people will say, oh, now you're not allowed to do so. You cannot have a public uh, name server that manages private IP addresses. Okay. That's an argument. You could argue that an attacker can gain information uh, from that public hosted zones about the private IP addresses. I would argue that's security by obscurity. It's not really that important, maybe. And also, I would argue that AWS itself <laughs> is doing that. So uh, load balancers, uh, RDS instances, they all have... Um, private IP addresses uh, that are resolved by contacting public DNS servers. So you already have that when using AWS. So it might not be uh, a big issue. But, but of course, I understand the other argument as well. So that's, again, um, a trade-off between maybe following very strictly to security guidelines to uh, the other side is having a more cost-effective solution. Okay, I see, Andreas. So I think that is kind of the same uh, like uh, argument that we have with public and private subnets here. Yeah, similar one, I would say. Yeah, that's definitely. So if you really follow strictly the rules and best, practice, best practices, that's a no-go. But on the other side, you can uh, you can reduce your costs by almost $200 per month <laughs> by not following the rules. So that might be worth the trade-off or it might not be worth the trade-off depending on your scenario, on your budget, and so on. Okay, so... Maybe one note to our listeners. So if you think that, ooh, there are lots of pitfalls and this is just like the networking section of AWS, um, I can highly recommend that you, um, if you're starting with AWS, so if you want to deepen your knowledge, uh, check out our book, Amazon Web Services in Action. And it is uh, published in the second edition, so it, it already get uh, got updated. And it covers a very broad uh, uh, service spectrum. So you will, have, you will find everything related to VPCs, also security groups, but we will also go into details um, um, regarding databases, RDS, DynamoDB. There will also be some SQS, S3, and stuff like this in the book. We also talk about architectures that you can create uh, to achieve high availability and all kinds of things. So if you... Are, so like if topics like this are, are of interest to you, then, then our book will definitely be uh, fun to read for you as well, I think. Andreas, um, so besides my uh, plug for the book, um, do you have like anything else to 
uh, add to the topic a summary or something like this or or uh, are we done yeah so one addition so where can where can i buy amazon web services in action our book so you can buy it wherever you buy your books so amazon.com your local book dealer um, and you can get it directly from manning which is the publisher so just search for aws in action and you will find all you need um, yeah let me let me sum up uh, our discussion of uh, pitfalls when designing advanced aws network architectures so first of all we discussed vpc peering uh, or transit gateway and the rule of thumb here is um for a smaller amount of VPCs, maybe using VPC peerings is still the best options or at least the most cost-effective option. Then we discussed the problems with the NAT gateway and one possible solution to move parts of the workload into the public subnet. We discussed VPC endpoints. Um, so remember, there's the, the gateway endpoints, which are free of charge. There's the interface endpoints. Um, that are allow you to connect to AWS services, but keep in mind that adding more than five interface endpoints uh, is more expensive than adding a NAT gateway, which is the alternative here. So keep that in mind. Um, then we discussed the, the, the pricing uh, of, of outbound traffic um, when using uh, content delivery networks. So the outbound traffic from uh, your VPC to the internet is free when using CloudFront, but you will pay for that traffic when using third-party CDN providers. So keep that in mind and calculate the costs for that before designing your architecture. And last but not least, we talked about Route 53 resolvers. Um, so they are a great way to set up uh, a hybrid uh, DNS environment, but the costs are quite significant. So $180 for inbound and also then for the outbound resolver. Um, so make sure to share the outbound resolver with multiple VPCs and maybe even AWS accounts and maybe think about using a public hosted zone instead of an inbound resolver. So that's the summary um, of these uh, AWS networking pitfalls that you should avoid. Um, I hope um, you have learned something um, from this uh, discussion. Uh, thanks for listening and um, yeah, we will be back in two weeks. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, Andreas, for preparing the topic. And um, I am motivated to uh, present something of similar quality in two weeks. So thanks very much for putting all the energy into this uh, research. And if um, our listeners um, now think, okay, maybe I forgot something, um, then um, check out the show notes where you find the blog post link where you can read up um the summary and all the details um, in case you uh, missed something. Thank you very much, Andreas, and talk to you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>